Okay. So, um, welcome to our little organization or our club here. We've got quite a lot of friends. Uh, most of it is just done like this. Um, so, basically, to get started, it is very valuable for people to know that the teachings of the Buddha are very, very simple. They're very so simple that it can be said in just one statement. But um, it's not so easy to do because we keep having to do that. And so an example of what we're talking about is just to say, for instance, like the entire job is to merely climb the mountain. <laughs> and we can state the job in just one phrase, climb the mountain. But in practicality, um, it's look at what this step is and take this step and keep track of what you're doing right now. And you'll eventually get to the top of the mountain. But if you keep uh, hankering for and looking for the top of the mountain, wanting the mountain, keeping your eyes on the mountain, you could fall into a ditch, into a ravine. You could get attacked by bears. You're just simply not watching where you're going. And this is the way that most people live their lives. They keep their eyes on a goal and they miss what's happening right in front of them. They always tell us to keep an eye on the goal. This is the what everyone says. So this mm -hmm. is what people do, I guess. And that I think that the reason for that, in fact, there's tremendous evidence, not from just uh, observation, but that psychologists have been observing this as long as there's been anything near psychology. And, and um, in, in fact, this has been known back into Bible times. And that is um, the phrase, train up a child in the way he should go. And he will resent that for the rest of his life. No, no, wait a minute. That's not it. Um, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will follow that whether he likes it or not. Now, this is an important point that we are trained in childhood to behave in a certain way. And when we were old, we continue to behave in that same way without um, making some changes. And so um, basically what happens with, with kids, and you probably remember this if you've been around kids and parents and whatnot, um, when a child is very, very young, the mother will nurture the child. She'll change his diaper, she'll feed him, she'll take care of him, and it doesn't matter really what the kid does, everything is okay. But by the time the kid is six years old, he's being put to work. Do your homework, clean up your room, stop playing with your cell phone, uh, go to school, learn your ABCs. And so we put our children to work. And that work ethic then stays with us our whole life, even to the point that when you're sitting down with really nothing to do and no place to go, which is quite common for everybody, we will still think up of something to do and some place to go. 
And in that regard, when we are in a state of no place to go and nothing to do, everything is really okay right then. But we won't allow that everything is okay right now because we have already been trained, like we were talking about, to get the job done. And we don't even know what the job is when we're sitting there with nothing to do, and so we'll invent something. And this is the way that we live our lives. And so you could say that the entire teachings of the Buddha can come down to just one phrase. And that one phrase is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Now, what we mean by the word Dukkha is, is that things are just inherently unsatisfying. We think we're going to get the benefit of that new item that we buy, but that benefit wears off very, very quickly in the sense of um, somebody's been using a laptop and the laptop breaks and they feel bad and so they go buy a new one and when they buy the new one they feel good but after a few days they're just and get that laptop all set up they're back to ordinary usual behavior but the important point was is that look how bad they felt when that laptop died so that the next time a laptop dies they're going to wind up feeling the same way again in other words, we attach to things, and then we lose them, and then we feel bad. And so we're trying to find a way of feeling good, where in fact, we don't need to go anyplace or do anything to feel good, because it's right here in front of us. But we have been trained into um, activities, we've been trained into working, we've been trained into th thinking that things that are important are physical or um, let us say in relationship to other people. An example of that is the relationship between a politician and a voter. So a lot of our um, ways of looking at things is our relationship to articles and our relationship to other people in the outside world. But really what the teachings of the Buddha is all about is our relationship to our interior world. And that's where we experience the dukkha. We experience the dukkha in the sense of unsatisfying uh, moments. And that we get in the habit of those unsatisfying moments. So that we go basically from one job to do, uh, Digging basically what we do is we dig up the past to find a problem to solve and then we think about solving that problem And then we'll dig up another problem to solve and then we'll think about that problem. And so the mind is really uh, Not at rest as often as it could be not satisfied the way that it could be It's constantly being dissatisfied because it's constantly thinking up problems that need to be solved And then trying to solve them Now in uh, in, in the Buddha's language, uh, that trying to solve the problem and then solving it is looked at in the sense of the past and the future. That the past is full of problems. You can dig up and go places in your mind about the places that you've been in the past and you can figure out something that you did wrong with every moment. You can second guess. Um, and in fact, what that means is, is that when we have remem remember things, we often do it with a critical eye or a critical mind. Just like 
we were trained when we were kids, when we go to school, it comes out of a nurturing environment, play school, into a critical environment, do your homework. And that what the real teachings of the Buddha is about is that we need to get back to that state of mind where everything was okay and everything was playful. And so we need to start to train ourselves moment by moment of coming out of the critical mind into a nurturing mind. And this is uh, because we have built up the habit of being critical. Now we have to spend some time to remember to be nurturing. To be I, remember, I remember thinking... Uh, it was years ago that the last time that we were free was in kindergarten because in kindergarten you don't need to do anything you don't need to you, there is no homework there is no test there is no grade you come to the kindergarten you play all day and then you go home mm-hmm. uh, so that was the time and and you go home and no homework and play right and go home and play yeah you can go home and play. So that was kindergarten. And again, once you go to the first grade and on, you have homework, you have things to do, uh, you have a to-do list. Um, when and you're so in now, kindergarten, it is the last time that you don't have a to-do list. Exactly. If you can get that, then you can also um, kind of remember that that was a, uh, a more joyful time in your life. Because you didn't have responsibilities or you didn't have jobs to do. So changing one's mentality then or actually um, a way of looking at it is it's the attitude change. This is why the Buddha's teachings are so simple. It's because there's very, very little that needs to be done. And what needs to be done can be done easily and it needs to be done right now that's the whole point uh is is that what the what needs to be done is easy to do but it must be done right now because if we delay it then we in fact may forget about it and then it doesn't happen this is why um, a very important quality of the teachings of the Buddha is called sati. And basically what it means um, in, let us say, formal language is to remember. But in um, a playful language or in the language of kindergarten, it, we can use the word wakey-wakey. And what that means is to wake up and look at what we're doing. Wake up and look at the, uh, whether we're enjoying what we're doing right now or not. Because mostly we are doing things for future benefit. Rather than for the benefit of the enjoyment of this particular moment. So that means that we begin to live a life from the kindergartner who has gratification. To the adult who has delayed gratification. Except the gratification keeps being delayed and delayed and delayed because we keep putting new items on the list of things that need to be done before we can finally relax. 
so the teaching of the Buddha then is, hey man, your, your relaxation has nothing to do with your to-do list. Because if you spend all your to-do list, all your time in to-do list, you're not going to spend any time in, um, let's say, the resolution of having gotten the job done. And so another quality that we're looking for here is what we would call repetition. That this is something that um, uh, is very, very well known and psychologists have learned it more and more. But um, the way that the human mind is, is that we are not the supercomputer that uh, humanity kind of thinks that we are. We compare ourselves to other animals and we say, look how much smarter we are than a dog or a bear or something like that. And that's a kind of chauvinism because what it means is, is that we're not really looking at how smart the dog really is. The dogs are pretty smart. If you don't believe me, look how many dogs do you know that are pets? which means that they live a kind of a kindergarten life. How many dogs do you know personally that are put to work? And even those dogs that are sniffing dogs and they learn to sniff a particular thing, whether it's cancer or COVID or drugs or whatever it is, it's still a game for them. Yep, I, my, my dog would agree. <laughs> right, and in that regard, dogs are smarter than humans. Because dogs have got an easy life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. I so, told Robert that uh, his dog has a better life than, than he does. He doesn't yeah, need he, to worry about the job and uh, pension <laughs> and uh, all the things. So yeah, dogs are pretty smart after life. all then. They're not as dumb as humans think they are. Because they have a pretty easy life. They know how to do that. So... Yeah, in that one one comment what? to add to that is I think one reason that dogs are so intelligent or so why they do so well in life is because they just show love. You know, they they just show love. Mm -hmm. And and I think in life if you can just show love, you know, you can live more like a dog, you know, in in, in that beautiful way. Well, that's exactly right. In fact, that's something that we can begin to talk about, too. But in the beginning, we were talking, uh, it's good to talk about the fact that humans are too busy then to show this love to where if the dog's got nothing to do, then the love will come up naturally. The love will be there, but we uh, and humans love, too. Without a doubt, but not as loving as the dog because the dog doesn't have a whole lot else to do to where humans find all <laughs> kinds of things to do. We this don't have is time. Way of, so that means that we have as a society are training our children to be unhappy because we're training them to say that this thing in the world is not good enough, it needs to be fixed. That this town needs a new building, or this church needs a new altar, or this road needs to be paved, or this needs that. 
and we live our lives as if things are constantly being broken and constantly being fixed. And we never come to the point of saying the job is done now. And so uh, in the practice of the Buddhism, we're going to recognize things at a very small level so that we can say that if we can do a small job well, watching what we're doing, then we can congratulate ourselves for having done that small job. And once we've gotten that small job done, there's nothing really left to do. And so the question is, well, what is that really small job? And the answer to that is, is that it, the small job means to come out of the big jobs in the sense of coming back to this present moment. Because remember, we were saying before that almost all the jobs are kind of orders that come out of the past. That anything that you can think to do right this very moment is normally concerned with something that triggered it from your past. And so um, we don't live in this present moment very much. And so the real practice of the Buddha, or if you want to call it meditation, the real art of meditation is to be here now, to be in this present moment, to not be dwelling in the past. There's something else about that. And that is, is that almost always when we're in uh, the past, we're thinking about the past. And that in um, standard modern Western English, that can be referred to as being in your head. You probably heard that expression. In our heads means that we're not paying attention to what's going on around us. We're thinking about something. And while we're thinking about something, we're not looking at what's going on around us. But when we're thinking about something, generally what we're thinking about is something that needs to be fixed, some problem that needs to be solved. And if we can come out of that thought into the here now, that's actually a very easy thing to do, but we have to remember to do it, to just drop whatever problem there, there was and start having wholesome thoughts instead of unwholesome thoughts. And what I mean by unwholesome thoughts is giving ourselves jobs to do, giving ourselves work. Um, so, in fact, in that regard, it goes from past to, to, to future, that we see things that, that uh, didn't go right in the past, and so we plan in the future to fix them. And in both cases, we've missed this present moment. An example of that is that the, uh, the young man has an argument with his girlfriend, and then he decides that, oh, it's time to meditate. I'm an experienced meditator. This is my time. I'm going to go sit down and I'm going to meditate. When he sits down to meditate, now he's thinking about that argument that he had with the girlfriend. He's not meditating. He's thinking. And what is he thinking about? He's thinking about that argument. Oh, I'll tell her this and I'll say that and I'll find it win this argument and I'll get my point across. And after he gets up out of his meditation, which he has now wasted, he goes and reestablishes that argument with his girlfriend. And now she'll, when he says what he wants to say, she'll say something brand new that he didn't even think about while he was sitting there in, the, in his meditation cushion. And so now he didn't win that argument either. So he didn't win the first argument, 
he didn't win his meditation and he didn't win the second argument. What kind of life is that? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, in a way, if he had been a practice meditator, when he caught himself arguing with his girlfriend, he could have said, wait a minute. I don't have to argue with her. I can enjoy her instead. We could be playing like we were in kindergarten instead of high schoolers fighting over something. And so this is the whole, it's an attitude change. And it's a very simple attitude change. The attitude is the distinction between uh, there is work to do to the attitude of everything is all right. Everything is fine right now. And that we almost have to talk ourselves into that. But that's an important point to understand because, I mean, after all, all of us have been talking ourselves into feeling bad all of these years. Now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good. How do we talk ourselves into feeling bad? You did that wrong, and this needs to be fixed. And you got to go visit that person. You got to go do this. You got to go to work and you got to go buy that thing. And so that you got to go, you got to go, you got to go just keeps us in a whole lot of activities, none of which we're actually enjoying. But I'm not saying that you have to stop all activities. What I'm talking about is stopping the planning of all the activities because most activities don't need much planning. An example of that is, um, occasionally, I go to the bank. Why do I go to the bank? It's because, well, there's reasons to go to banks. There's uh, uh, Social Security checks coming in to this account, but it needs to be put in that account. And so I go about once a month. Now, here's the point. I can think about going to the bank the next time I go to the bank, and then I can think about it again. But in fact, if I am watching what I'm doing, I will probably think about going to the bank a hundred or two hundred times before I actually go to the bank. And all of those mind moments are wasted. Why should I think about the bank if I'm not actually going to the bank? Interesting, huh? Why should I go to the bank or why should I think about going to the bank and then not go to the bank? If I know I'm going to the bank next Tuesday, I don't even have to think about going to the bank until next Tuesday. Why should I think about it on Monday? The reason for it is because of that old tape that we play of trying to solve problems, trying to fix things, trying to say, I can't be okay until I get everything done. Another way of saying that is that I can't be happy and content until I feel safe and I need to get all of that stuff done in order to feel safe. But the real point is look around your room right now and you can recognize there's no alligators on the floor. There's no pythons. You don't have any tarantulas in the room. There's no mafia bosses uh, coming through the window. There uh, are, Dumbarone, there is no, I, uh, I believe, go ahead. I believe, I believe there are some pretty big spiders in Thailand. <laughs> my, my memory <laughs> yes but each one of them I've seen I've made friends with 
You are in uh, Thailand? Yes. Where in Where? Thailand? On Koh Phangan. I've, I've been there. You have been to Copangan, okay. Yes. yes. It's, on a, it's an outer, outer island going into the Gulf of Thailand off the East Coast. So, um, anyway, the point is, is that we are safe. We have built a society that is fairly safe. Not completely safe, but fairly safe, as opposed to the jungle that humanity lived in 100, 200, 5,000, or 100,000 years ago. Way back in the past, life was dangerous. That we have very fast reaction times because uh, predators try to sneak up on them. You can imagine that the wildebeest, they want to know where the lion is, but the lion wants to sneak up so he can do a surprise attack. But even if the surprise is there, uh, the wildebeest will be on alert so that most of them will get away. They'll only get one. Now, here's the point that we're making is, is that there is a reaction time that we have and that if we are um, slow, we're lunch. The idea then is uh, there's actually an old movie uh, out of the 1990s. Uh, um, and the name of the movie is a, it's a Western. And the name of the movie is The Quick and the Dead. But if you think about it, in the old days, in primitive society, that's all there ever was, the quick and the dead. Those who are quick uh, either avoid being lunch or they get lunch. And those who are slow get eaten. Because of that, we make questions or we make decisions very quickly at an instinctual level. But we often make a lot of false positives. We make mistakes. We think that things are dangerous because in the old days, 100,000 years ago, built into our genes, things were dangerous. And so we had to be on alert all the time or we're going to be lunch. That gives us a kind of a feeling inside then of restlessness, a feeling of I got to be on the toes, a feeling of I can't relax because things are dangerous right now. And it's a leftover feeling. Now, on, on a side point, way back when we lived in the jungle. And so what humanity has done over the course of thousands of years is built a human civilization for ourselves that we had hoped would be safe. But in fact, it never has been safe. We haven't been very good at it. Why? Because if I can build a town that is safe for me, then and that town is not safe over there, then those people either need to build a wall or somebody's going to attack them. That humans actually are pretty brutal with each other. We come out of a brutal past and we continue with a kind of brutality inside. Now, uh, what that means is, is that even though we built cities, we still refer to those cities as kind of a concrete jungle. We haven't gotten the jungle out. It's almost, you probably heard the expression, you can uh, take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. 
we can use the word jungle here. We can take the boy out of the jungle, but we can't take the jungle out of the boy. There's still jungle inside. And what that means is a basic level of insecurity, a basic level of danger or fear that is in fact built in, but unuseful. We don't need that anymore. Like I said, look around your room, you're completely safe. If you're completely safe in reality, why is it that we don't feel safe? That we feel like we've got to do something. So, what I'm inviting you to do from the very beginning is to start to become aware from time to time, actually, this feeling of insecurity, this feeling that something is not quite right, this feeling of something needs to be done before I can feel good. Because the answer is, is that you don't really need to do anything. You can go ahead and feel good right now. But we have to remember to do it. And then we have to talk ourselves into it. Because for the past 10 minutes or so, we've been talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good. This is, in fact, something that's, that's generally uh, missed in Western meditation. When they take various meditations, they talk about noting it or looking and seeing what the mind is doing. But basically what they're doing is, is that this is actually the first step. But they don't have to wait three years before they start doing the second step. They can do that second step the next second, the next mind moment. And what is that second step is when we note that the mind is in an unwholesome state, that is having thoughts that generate fear, we can change that thought right here, right now. And so this is the kind of thinking that we would use uh, that the Buddha calls gladdening the mind, brightening the mind. That if the mind is heavy working on something and then sati, then we remember and we say, wakey, wakey, I can feel good right now. I don't have to feel bad. That this moment is really an okay moment. That in fact, almost everything that's dangerous to me is either something that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But right now, everything is okay. Right now, everything is fine. Can you tell yourself that? Can you get that? Can you understand that? Can you actually believe that things are okay right now? Can you? It's, um, so, of course, there is always both things. I mean, most of the times you can think of uh, 10 good things and 10 bad things that, that you have in life. So it's a question of what are you looking at? Exactly. This is what Sati is all about, is to wake up and look at what the mind is actually doing in the moment. And the second step is, is that, and then change it to something that's more wholesome. To begin to uh, have wholesome thoughts. Now, mostly wholesome thoughts would be wholesome thoughts about what's happening right now. What's in this present moment? What's, what's going on right now is really wholesome. 
What happened in the past is already gone and dead. What is in the future has yet and may never come to be. So when we're thinking about the past and thinking about the future, in a way, we're in a delusional state. That the only reality that actually exists is the reality of this present moment. Everything else is delusional. An example of that would be that I remember, maybe in the deep past or even recently, about something that happened in public, and I misbehaved badly, made a complete ass of myself. And so every time I remember doing that, I feel bad again. However, if in the reality of the situation, I would go and talk to each individual person, they probably will be easier on me. One is they could be dead already. <laughs> Number two is that they've completely forgotten all about it. Number three, they've completely forgotten about me too. <laughs> or the other one was they didn't see it as a big, they remember the, the, the issue, but it wasn't a big deal for them. So you see, we really don't live in a reality. We live in a constructed reality of, oh no, what could go wrong? Oh no, that went wrong. So we're actually being overly critical. We're finding fault where there is no problem. And so, what, and, and we were trained like that from childhood, starting basically in first grade. I think, in fact, it starts when we're in kindergarten. That we don't get to play all the time in kindergarten. They start putting us to work at a very young age. But the interesting <laughs> thing about dogs is we don't put the dogs to work. There are a few that do, but most people, when they have a pet dog, uh, other than uh, teaching him some potty training skills and maybe fetching a ball, which is nothing but play, the dog really doesn't have to learn anything or do much of anything. And yet that same individual that has the dog when he has a child now we have plans. Oh, it's like the, the funniest joke of all, I think, in that regard, is the new father that comes to the hospital where his wife has just given birth to the baby. And what does he bring? He brings a baseball bat and a baseball and a baseball glove. Why would he do that? is because he doesn't see the infant as an infant. He sees the infant as a 10-year-old child that he, that he wants to teach how to play baseball. He can't even let that baby be a baby now. You see how future-oriented we get. And so daddies are like that. They, they do not want to let the child be just a child. We keep thinking about, um, oh, well, you got to learn this and you got to learn that. You got to do that thing. You got to get a job. You got to go here or there and the other place. And so we pick these things up as marching orders from parents. And then we give ourselves those marching orders in, in memory. And so um, all of the woulds, shoulds, coulds, rules, laws, rituals, ways of doing things, we store up in our mind. And then we try to live according to all of the old plans that we learned as child in childhood about what do you need to do 
in order to have a good life? What do you need to do to be happy? And guess what? The dog is already happy and he didn't have to do anything. Which means that if we can reprogram our own minds to the point that you don't really have to do anything to be happy. You're all, you but the dog can be like that because there is someone else who worries. So Robert's dog can be happy because Robert is going to work and earning money to, to pay for his food and, uh, and, and to take him and, and for the vet and all. And, and he can be and he can just play all day because it is Robert who, who goes and buys food and cooks the food or doesn't cook the food or whatever. I mean, the, the, the dog can do that because he now has a Now you're caretaker. convincing me that the dog is smarter than Robert. Yes. Because uh, <laughs> uh, the dog gives Robert to do everything. Now, let's look at it from primitive but, times. But, but we don't have, I mean, when we're kids, yes. But after that, we don't have this caretaker who does everything for us. I know. I know. All right. And that's a valid point. Let's look at it from the perspective of how life was back in primitive times, hunter-gatherers, the time before we built cities. And what they look at is um, the hunting um, party that goes out and gets a really, really big animal. Maybe they can find a way of, of running wildebeest off a cliff or that they can surround a, uh, a mammoth or something like that. But generally, when, when the uh, hunters get, get a big animal, it doesn't take them very long to get that big animal. In fact, part of the migration is, is that they always keep moving so that they're in the vicinity of those big animals. So when they get a big animal, they've got lunch for days. In fact, uh, after they learned about fire and learned about uh, um, drying meat in the, um, in the sun, they could live for sometimes weeks without having to go on a hunt. Also, in the gathering stage, when uh, the uh, gatherers would go out, they would go out into the forest looking for stuff and get enough for what they needed today. And that would take about maybe an hour or two. So, working for one day a week, or one day every two weeks, or maybe working an hour in a day, or an hour a day, is about all that we did way back when. So why is it that we have to work eight hours a day now? Why is that? Basically, it's not even eight hours. It's now it is much more than that. The eight hour uh -huh. work day is history. Now it's mm -hmm. 12. Maybe so more, we can depending. say then that the reason that Robert has to work for so long uh, to get the stuff that he and his dog needs is because of the way that the society is structured so that Robert doesn't get all the benefit of his work. So that if it actually someone comes in and takes most of the hour, uh, the benefit of that hour's work. So someone goes out and gathers and they bring a whole bunch of stuff back to camp and then somebody takes most of that stuff. So now we got to go back and get some more. We come back and then somebody takes that. Who is it that takes all of our, uh, the efforts of all of our labor? He's called a boss. He's called a guy who makes benefit off of other people's labor. And that most of us have been trained 
in our society, oh, that we can't go get what we need for ourselves on our own. We have to go get it from a boss who is going to then charge us to give us a job. In other words, but it's not, not even to... the boss because the the boss also doesn't work one hour a day and not even eight hours. The 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 boss himself works twelve, fourteen hours a day. You're ahead of you're ahead of me. I was about to bring that up. So winds up. Even though there is mass accumulation of wealth, still even the people who are amassing the wealth off of the labors of everyone else is still not satisfied. And so they want to keep working. Very few people, in fact, um, uh, one of the, how to say it, one of the most looked down on, hated kind of people in the world are the super rich that are called playboys. An example of that is the wealth, the very wealthy Saudi princes that have very expensive automobiles driving around Los Angeles are hated. Our society does not tolerate idleness. That the society itself, and when I'm talking about the society itself, I'm talking about the general viewpoint of all of the people who live in that society, is, is that we have to be productive. We have to get a GRP. Uh, no matter how much Robert makes, it's not enough. He needs to make more. More is not enough. He needs to make even more than that. And this is how the society works. But guess what? Even though we built these big, huge, magnificent concrete cities, it's still a jungle. And most of the jungle is not out on the streets. The jungle is in the mind. It is not a jungle out there. The jungle is in here. And what jungle is it that's in here is all the stuff that we learned from the jungle out there. We brought the jungle into the mind. We brought the society into the mind. And that's how we live our lives. And that there is a way to change that. But we have to remember that every moment we can change it. That's the key. That's the sati. In fact, there's four items on the list. Uh, that are very important. The first one is called right view. Now, what does right view mean? Is it means basically uh, that we most people have a viewpoint, and the viewpoint that they have is often the viewpoint that they took in the past, and they assume that what they saw in the past is how things still are. So, real right view is not uh, taking a viewpoint or taking a um, conclusion and keeping that conclusion rather right noble view is to keep looking to keep investigating to keep noticing that we don't come to conclusions we keep coming back to just more investigation this is one's so, right view uh one comment so to kind of bridge the gap a bit between your two views i think you know Damarato, please correct me if i'm wrong but i believe that that part of your point is that you can actually still be doing these things like working, you know, or, you know, writing papers in the case of Ethan, who's a professor, you know, or whatever it may be, um, you know, but you can do it with the spirit of a dog. 
you know, you can do it with the spirit of a joyful animal, you know, mm -hmm. provided that you live in the moment. Is, is that, would you say that's correct? Yes, that in yeah. fact, we can bring that playful attitude back so that the whole world, the office, the society and everything is our kindergarten. And we can learn to play our way through life. But we have to remember to do that because the old training is up two, three, four. The old training is if you don't do what you're told to do, you're going to get punished. And if you do what you're told to do, you will get some future reward. And it always has to do with that time lag. This is what the law of karma is, is the law of karma says is that if you do good, you'll get good results. If you do bad, you'll get bad results. And then the kicker is no matter what, which means that people can do good and not get any good result. Then they'll be promised, oh, well, you got to keep doing it and eventually you'll get the good result. Or someone can back, act badly and get away with it. And then they have the idea, oh, well, I can get away with it. I can keep getting away with it. And that I don't have to pay up. And both of these are wrong because we don't know what reality is going to bring. But what we do know is, is that if I am in this present moment watching what's going on, I can handle things a whole lot better than if I handle them from my concepts or from my uh, uh, conclusions or from my old viewpoints that I can really see what's happening right now. And so this is the uh, the new way of looking. And it's actually just one little switch in the mind. It's a very little small thing to do one step at a time. Just keep remembering that this moment is good. Everything right now is okay. Uh, one, one look how many comment. times you tell yourself that things are not okay right now, that you got to go do something and then things will be okay. But the fact is that already things are okay. Sure, not to interrupt, but I'm going to light a cigar and I'll head downstairs. So I'm still with you guys. I'm just going to be smoking. Everything a is okay. Yeah, so any of, <laughs> uh, please continue. Yeah, I'm listening. Okay. So this is basically it. The, the right view is to keep inspecting, to keep looking, to keep noticing and basically to keep noticing what the mind is doing. The next step is right sati, which is the wake up. So we wake up and we take a view. We look at what we're doing. We keep remembering to look at what we're doing. If we recognize, if we see what we're doing is unwholesome in the moment, like for instance, trying to solve a puzzle that we can't solve, or trying to solve a problem, uh, a puzzle now, then in fact will have to be solved at a later time, but I'm pre-planning and all of that. When we recognize that we're doing that, then we can stop and say, wait a minute, I don't have to think about any of that. I can be happy right now instead. And so we begin to cultivate feeling good. We cultivate being happy. We begin to remember everything is okay right now. Everything is fine. No place to go, nothing to do, and everything is hunky-dory. And we keep reminding ourselves of that over and over again because the old habits of the mind is you've got work to do. You've got to go do something. 
You can't be uh, happy and, and relaxed right now until you get the job done. The answer is the only job that I had to do was to throw that thought out that I've got work to do. <laughs> the only job I have to do is to throw that unwholesome thought out about work that needs to be done. And now I don't have any work to do. Because I just forgot about the thought of what having work to do. So if I don't have any work to do now, I can sit down and relax. But I, still got to, but I still got to make a living, so I still have to work. Okay, but now you're bringing future back into it. I'm not talking about you going to work next week or tomorrow or whatever. I'm talking about right now. And you brought tomorrow into it. See how that happens? We keep bringing the future, bringing the past back into it. But in the fact, if you think about it, right this very moment, Everything is okay. Yeah, right now everything is okay. I don't need to work now. Well, just enjoy that this is okay right now. And if you can get into the habit of this is okay, then you could go to work each moment. This is okay too. This is actually not work. This is, uh, um, <laughs> this is kindergarten. So we keep bringing back that this is okay, this is fine. Um, let me give you this example. Um, you, get a uh, you get an email or a letter in the mail from, uh, it could be anything, but let us say that it's an email from a lawyer and that you just notice that that email is there. Now, some people will say, I gotta do it. I gotta jump into that email and read it. Others will say, not only do I have to read the email, but I've got to answer it right now. Other people can say, well, especially like here in Thailand, if I get it, if I wake up in the morning and come and check email <coughs> from someone in the United States, then that means that I've got all day. I don't have to read that email. I don't have to look at it. I don't have to see anything about it because I don't have to answer it now. Because if I answer it now, the people who sent the email that I'm sending it back to are asleep now. So I've got all plenty of time and I've, I've got it like that. But if I sit there and do something else and then I think about that email again and then think about that email again, I really haven't dealt with it because I'm keep dealing with it. But if I can say, all right, they get up at eight in the morning, that means I don't have to do anything about that email until eight o'clock tonight. And so anytime that email comes to mind, I can say, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. Isn't it marvelous? I don't have anything to do. But the normal mind will keep going back to that email that's undone. I got to do this. And then we don't do it, but we got to do it. And so we give ourselves a job to do. We don't do it. We feel a little bad. We feel a little sad. We feel a little afraid. And we, so we keep thinking about it and we still don't do it. Now, when I say thinking about it, basically I'm talking about it from from a structural position of the mind that there is a thing in there that we store up how things should be. In uh, the teachings of the Buddha, this is called Sila Bhatta Paramasa, uh, and that's translated as attachments to rites, rules, and rituals. 
but basically what uh, is going on is that this is all of the stored stuff about how things should be done, including how emails should be done. That emails, when you get an email, you should open it. You should read it. You should respond to it. But in fact, you don't have to do any of those things. Those are just rules that we have in the mind. And so the question is not whether I'm going to deal with that email or not. The question in this sense is how many times have I had to deal with it unsuccessfully? Before I ever answer that email, I'm going to think about answering that email a dozen times. And that happens instantly in the mind. We have that thought, and then we have the feeling, oh, I've got work to do, and then we have the thought, I don't want to do that work. And so then we don't do it. And then we have that little secret again. The email comes up, I've got work to do, I don't want to do the work, I feel bad, and I still don't do the work. And so this is thing that happens over and over and over again. And if we can catch that stuff and we can watch it, then we can be gentle on ourselves instead of critical. Because if you think about it, what we've just talked about is as soon as I think about that email, I've given myself a job to do. I'm being critical. There is work to be done. But there's another part of us that says, oh, no, I don't really have to do it right now. And so we don't do it. And so then the dialogue is says, yes, you should do it. No, I don't. And so now we have kind of a war going on inside, and the war is between the rules of how it should be and what we actually want. If you think about it like that, uh, this way, it's like the boss or the mommy or the adult or the parent comes into the mind and gives the child in kindergarten some work to do and the child in the kindergarten says i don't want to do that work and then the parent says you gotta do it and so now we have a dialogue between you gotta do it and i don't want to do it you gotta do it and i don't want to do it this is the kind of dialogue that people have in their minds and we need to wake up to those kind of dialogues to recognize that i don't have to do that to myself that I'm okay whether I do that email or not. And in fact, it's not the email that's the issue. It's how I feel about it. And if I can get myself into a really, really good feeling, then eventually I can go take care of that email while I'm feeling good. Most people will say, I've got to do the email, and they do it, and they feel bad. So, um, let me introduce something to you that I'm going to call, uh, <clears throat> kind of labeled wrongly as the OK Corral. And the OK Corral mentality or that phrase comes from Eric Byrne in a book that he wrote in the 70s called I'm OK, You're OK. Now, uh, he co-authored that with someone else. I don't remember who it was, but in any case, the I'm okay, you're okay is how we relate to the world. I'm okay, but he's not okay. I'm better than he is. I'm his boss. Or I'm not okay, but he is okay, which means now I'm in a one-down position. 
but let's take this from I'm okay, you're okay, into I'm okay and the job to be done. So we could say it like this. We've got four corners here. We've got the left and the right, and we've got the below and the above. The left and the right, then, is do I do the job or not? Do I, do I read and answer the email or not? Or whatever it is, whatever task that we have to do, it has to do with do we do it or we not do it. And then on the, uh, the vertical, we have below is I feel bad. And then on the top, we have I feel good. I feel happy. I feel content. I feel satisfied. Now, in this regard, that means that how we feel is not actually related to what we do. They're two different things in the sense that over in this quadrant, I can feel bad and not do it. Or I can convince myself I've got to do it and then I can go over there and feel bad and do it. Or the other possibility is, is that I cannot do it and feel really good. And after I feel really good, now I can go and do it. And so I can wind up doing it and feeling good to where my old style is to do it and feel bad. But when you recognize how we feel about something, so that's what you were bringing about. Yeah, but he's still got to go to work because of the dog. Well, the thing of it is, is that when you see the work as work, that means that we feel bad about it. We don't we do something that we don't want to do. And the answer to that within the context that we're talking about is, OK, if you feel bad right now about something that you're either doing or about to do or postponing to do, the real job is to get yourself into feeling good. Once you get yourself into feeling good, now you can make a new choice as to whether you're going to do it or not. If we will take that time to get ourselves into feeling good, then we can feel good while we do whatever we're going to do. But normally what we do is mindlessly or without sati or without waking up, we do it because we feel bad. We think that if we do I it, like the idea of better. separating. I like the idea of separating we do or don't do and we feel good or bad. Mm -hmm. Your choice. If you know you've got that choice, most of us don't know we've got the choice. Most of us don't know we've got the choice. We think that the only choice is, is that I've got to do it or not. And we don't even take into consideration how we feel about it. And so we wind up feeling bad and doing it. And then we've got more to do and we feel bad about that. And so we wind up our whole lives. We've spent mostly feeling bad and we don't give much time feeling good. But within the context of what we're talking about is, is that every time there is something to do. And we feel bad about it, recognize that that bad feeling is there, get ourselves into a good feeling and to now we can decide whether we're going to do it or not. So uh, this question. So what's your take on, say, like someone that, you know, may have had, you know, a lot of trauma or whatnot and they have a hard time feeling good about anything? Good question. I, I have 
many students who try to pull that crap on me. <laughs> and I can always remind them <coughs> that at one time you were in kindergarten. That at one time there was a time in your life when you did feel nurtured, that everything was okay, that you could in fact play. And that at that time when you were playing, there was no um, professor or teacher or kindergarten worker or whatever in that room telling you what to do. But nowadays in your kindergarten, you've got the sum total of all of those people in your mind telling you what to do. And so what I'm inviting you to do is to take a look at all of those uh, laws, rules, rituals, uh, orders, because basically we go around ordering ourselves around to do things that we know should be done and then rebel, rebel and feel bad about. This is the standard sequence. Just like um, the children, if the, if the um, nursery worker comes into the kindergarten and says, all right, you people, put away all of these toys. This is toy time and play time is finished now, and you got to do what I tell you to do. What are the kids going to feel right then when, they, when that happens? How are they going to feel, the kindergarten kids? If somebody Terrible. comes in and takes your toys away and try to put them to work. They're upset. They don't like it, huh? Well, guess right. what? You do that on the inside anyway. You come in and you give yourself a bunch of orders. You say, oh, grim up, folks. You got this work to do. You got to go take care of that email. And then we say, I don't want to. And then the orders inside the mind says, you got to do it anyway. I don't care how you feel. You got to get the work done. And it's, it's kind of like, in a sense, sort of continuing. Let's say you had a, a parent that was abusive, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, in a sense, it's kind of continuing that process, correct? You're continuing mm -hmm. to abuse yourself the way that parent might have abused you emo emotionally. Precisely, because that's how we learned how to live. We learned how to live from an abusive parent, and therefore, that's the only way we know how to live, is by being abusive to ourselves and abusive to other people. Because that's our habit. It's our learned behavior. The question is, is can you learn a new trick? Are you going to be a one-trick pony the whole life? Because you were abused, you're going to go around abusing yourself and abusing others, or can you wake up to that? I think uh, I think what what Robert is doing and what I am doing in all sorts of way, part of it by by talking to you, but in other ways is trying to learn new tricks. Um, yeah. I've, uh, I will need to go in a few minutes. I, I, I wasn't prepared to, 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 to this talk. It was just last minute Robert told me to, to jump in, so I jumped in. I am the... really glad to meet you. Okay, me too. Uh, Ethan, this has been great. And uh, uh, I invite you to, to talk again. I really like to talk about the Dhamma. This okay. is kind of what I do. So you're invited to call me again and we can go a little bit deeper. But if you got that one thing from me about what we call the OK Corral, 
to recognize that it's not whether we do the work or not, it's how we feel about it. And how we feel was how we were trained to feel. And that you can train yourself to feel better. You can I think this is mind. what we are trying to do now. I think Robert, myself, in in Osasova, yes, to retrain ourselves to 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 look at things in a different way, more compassionate to ourselves. Exactly, compassionate oh, for yourself, because if you're not compassionate with yourself, there's not much hope for you to be compassionate to other people. But if you can be compassionate to yourself, then you can be compassionate for other people. Why? Because you've got the skill of compassion. And compassion is a skill that needs to be developed. That nurturing is a skill because we have been I think sometimes what uh, I think sometimes I, I, I say it about my, myself, but maybe others, especially those who were uh, had trauma, they find it easier to be compassionate to other people than to be compassionate to them, themselves. So they can be compassionate to a stranger, but not to themselves. Uh, they will be compassionate to that stranger until that stranger says something they don't like. <laughs> and then compassion goes right out the window with that person, just like compassion goes right out the window when we tell ourselves something we don't like. Totally. <laughs> and so, yes, the, uh, the, let us say the bottom line or the starting point then for relationships should be compassion. If that's the case, then why aren't all relationships continually compassion? Why do we have to wind up being critical of other people? The answer is because we learned criticism. We're critical. We're critical of ourselves. We're critical of the world. We're critical of our lifestyles. We're critical of other people. And we go around being critical. In the name of trying to improve things and make them better. Don't you want to have a better world? The answer in the Buddhist sense is that there's nothing wrong with the world. The world is fine with or without me. Another way of thinking about that is the planet Earth. The planet Earth, they say global warming and things are going south and uh, terrible weathers and all of that. And the answer to that is, is that the planet Earth is okay. There's no, no problem with the planet Earth, with or without humans. The planet Earth is fine. Planet Earth doesn't need humans and it can get along with us and we can get along without us. So really when we talk about the world, it's not the world of the planet Earth, it's the world of the society that humans have made. And that's that world is always under construction, always trying to be improved. Um, I will. Um, and it's good right now. <laughs> I okay. will uh, leave you now. Uh, it was nice to meet you and thank you. And we will talk again. Oh, I'm glad. Okay. Give me a call on Skype. You know how. Okay. I don't take appointments. I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work, but call yeah. me when you want to. Right. Okay. Awesome. Th thanks so much for joining Ethan and Damarato. We will continue right now. Well, I'll talk about my 
if you have time. Okay. But, uh, all right, great. Ethan, awesome. good to meet you. Glad to see to you. Meet. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Take care, Ethan. Talk soon. Talk tomorrow. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for speaking with my friend. That was great. I think he got a lot out of it. So, uh, I you? hope so. Yeah. And, uh, it's almost eye-opening. I mean, it's kind of amazing that we don't have to, to live the lives that we've been trained to live, that we can make some choices. Totally. Totally. I, I agree. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, it's funny. There's also this concept of the paradox of choice, right? Have you heard of this in economics? Uh, tell me about choice. it. So the economists did a study, and they found that if you go into a store and there's 100 types of jam, you're less likely to make a choice than if there's five types of jam. So you're actually more likely to make a purchase when there's less types of jam available. Um, and they call it the paradox of choice because you would think that um, that the more choices, the more likely you are to find your favorite jam. But it's actually not like that. You know, and I think life is like that in the modern world where, you know, it can feel like there's just so many choices sometimes, you know. And mm -hmm. um, it could be, okay, I can go deeper into my dhamma, you know, practice, or I can go dancing, you know, or I can <laughs> go to, you know, a ceremony, or I can go to, you know, you know, painting or whatever, or I can do a little bit of each, you know, mm -hmm. and um, sometimes I think for me, even those choices are kind of a prison, <laughs> getting back to our prison conversation the other day, Uh huh. you know, and so um, you're bringing up an interesting point about the jam and the economist. And um, and I would like to bring in the concept of the distinction between the hunter and the gatherer. Um, and because of, um, let us say, natural history, that the way that our society has been built is a bit different from men and women. So that women have uh, both the instinct and also the training to be more gatherers to where the men by their training and by their instinct is more of a hunter. Sure. So you send uh, the, uh, the husband or the boyfriend into the grocery store with a grocery list. And he's going to come out of the grocery store more than likely with fewer items purchased than what were on the list because he couldn't find some of them. But if you send a woman into the grocery store with that list, she's going to come out of the grocery store with more items that are on the list. Not to interrupt, but I totally see that with my mom. You know, like she just buys so much stuff, you know. And oh, Rocky, Rocky. Oh, Rocky, are you okay? Oh, sorry, I think my, hold on one second. He's, oh, okay, he's fine. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> he was just making some noise. Um, so in, in that regard, um, if uh, the, uh, the shopping list has uh, jam and the store has 100 varieties of jam, the wife is more than likely going to buy more than one bar, bottle of jam. 
Because you've got so many choices. And the guy may walk in there and see what choices there are and doesn't know what to do, becomes confused, and he winds up leaving without buying any jam at all. Sure. Totally. And, and okay. yeah, I was, I was saying, like, you know, it's really funny with my mom, right? Because she, um, she goes and buys all of these clothes. And, you know, she has way more than she needs. And I say, you know, Mom, you have stuff from 15 years ago. You know, like... <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> you really need this, you know, and, but she just, she enjoys it. It's like a form of therapy for her, you know, and to be honest, like sometimes I do something like that, not with buying things, but like I'll buy a cup of coffee or a cake and I really don't, a cheesecake, you know, I did this the other day. I really didn't need this at all, but it was just like something that made me feel good, you know? Precisely. I would then uh, go with that <clears throat> and then question whether it's therapy or not. <laughs> but rather, it's that uh, people feel good by by acquiring things. Sure, that you, sure, totally. Okay, and that if it goes wild, then they can be call it, uh, one of the words is shopaholic. Right. And another one that's along with that is shop till you drop. Sure. Okay, both of these things are things that are more associated with women than they are with men. Sure. Men have the, the quality of production in the sense of hunting and, and, um, and landing it, getting something that you have to chase down and grab hold of to where women are uh, much more gatherers if they just take what they find, but they keep taking and keep taking because they don't get enough gratification out of what they do take. Now that's sure. being, uh, those boundaries are being, um, let us say, uh, kind of erased in our modern, more modern society. But back in the 1950s, you could see that there was a stark difference between the way that men shopped and the way that men, women shopped. Now there's a little bit more of a, uh, a mixture in there, but still those old tendencies are there. Totally. Um, but back to the point, and that is, is that really we think that we're going to get pleasure out of materialism. Why do we think that? It's built right into our culture. It's built right into our society. Sure. Um, you can imagine that in very, very primitive times, one of two things happened. One possibility was is that um, uh, an almost human, or perhaps a uh, brand new human, uh, at the very early stages, was, was sitting by a carcass that had been fairly well picked clean by the predators, the jackals, the lions, and whatnot. And that he picks up a rock and starts beating the bones to get the marrow out of it. And then the thought occurs to him, this is a good rock. <laughs> this rock works. This rock gets uh, bone marrow. And so what sure. he does is something absolutely unique in history for the first time. He not just picks up and uses the rock as a tool, he keeps it. Hmm. Now, we do know that all kinds of animals use tools. 
otters use a rock. Not to interrupt, but have you seen 2001, A Space Odyssey? Stanley Kubrick? Many times. (laughs) Yes, yes. That's a great movie of the Dharma for you. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's that Picking up those bones. Exactly. Using them as weapons and tools. Exactly. And, And what's so interesting about the way you just brought that up is in the movie... Um, he uses the rock, I think, to hit someone or hit something. Um, but I think you're really right to point out that what's actually maybe unwholesome about that situation would be if he kept the bone to do it. And that's mm-hmm. the real beginning. And it's not clear that, if he keeps it or not in the movie. They don't focus on that. Right. Maybe they were just, you know, maybe uh, one generation or maybe 100,000 years a little early <laughs> with that monolith. But yeah. eventually, the guy keeps the rock. Right. The other possibility is is that there was a, um, uh, a natural forest fire, and he picks up a stick that on one end is burning. But on this end of the stick, he can hold it. And he sees the value of that fire. This, this, they say, happened about 600,000 years ago. That humans have had fire for about 600,000 years ago. The question is, which did he keep first, the fire or the rock? The answer is, it doesn't really matter. What we're looking at is the fact that we as humans start to collect physical things. So let's say the rock came first. Eventually, he's going to tie a stick to that rock, and it's going to be an axe. Sure. And he's so, going to use... Go ahead. So, quick comment on the fire. So, um, this is a bit of a side tangent, but I think fire is really beautiful. You know, if you look at a fire, like, you know, there's the whole thing about the fire casino and all of this, you know, but I, I think one reason people like to look at fire is because it's kind of hypnotic and beautiful, and it's dancing and changing all the time. And it's doing it in a way that's controlled, but it's also kind of chaotic. And there's a little bit of danger about it, too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Fascinating, exactly. That you can see exactly how fire meditations came about. Is a bunch of um, primitives were sitting around a fire. Right and, and, right. and all of a sudden, everybody just focuses right in on that fire. It's a... Right. It's a uh, absorbing, we become absorbed in it. Okay, right. fast forward a few centuries, and then the Buddha comes along and he says, "Wait a minute, we don't need to become inspi- um, absorbed by a physical object on the outside of the fire. We can become absorbed with this fire on the inside of the mind. Let's start looking at what's going there. Could be, in fact, it happens very much like fire that we really don't know what thought's going to come up next. It's kind of chaotic in there." It is, right? And there's actually a similar thing with the ocean, interestingly, because water is the opposite of fire, right? Water puts out fire, and they're considered opposite elements by many people. But the ocean... But we have the water meditation. Yes, yes. (laughs) And there's that hypnotic thing to the ocean where you can just keep looking at it, looking at it, looking at it. It's always changing. It's a little bit dangerous, the ocean. You know, et cetera. It's very similar, actually, to, to, to exactly meditating on so. fire. It's, there's a lot of anicca in, in the ocean, you know. Uh, exactly so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we get attached or absorbed to this. We become attached to fire. We need water. 
but also do we need the rock? Like I was saying, otters have learned to take rocks off the bottom as well as shells, bring it up to the surface. The otter is floating on his back and he's taking that rock and he's breaking that shell open. Once he gets that shell open, he's going to keep that shell and eat the, uh, the muscle, but he's going to drop the rock and the rock's going to fall back to the bottom of the, uh, uh, the brook or uh, lake he's in. Also, uh, apes will use a straw to put down into the hole to get grubs to grab a hold of that straw and and the monkey this is smart i mean monkeys know what they're doing and when the when the grub starts eating the the thing he knows that the grub is eating it he can feel it on the end and he'll pull it out and now he gets the grub and he eats the grub what does he do with the straw do you see monkeys walking around with a with a pocket full of straws you know it's funny if they did we would consider it a great accomplishment by monkeys <laughs> exactly <laughs> But that's, that was the actual, uh, uh, it's instinctual behavior, and that the actual instinct that this comes out of is the procreation instinct. But if you look at the procreation instinct in a certain way, you can see that that too is materialism. That in fact, one of the very funny old drawings, uh, cartoons, is to see a Neanderthal kind of guy dressed in a bear skin, and in one hand he's holding a club or an axe, and in the other hand he's holding a handful of hair that he's dragging the woman into a cave. <laughs> right? Yeah. What, what that means is that in, even in primitive times, sexuality was turned into materialism. Right, right. Okay, and so uh, our um, our procreation instinct and our materialism gets all mixed together inside the mind. Sure, and it still is materialism to this day. You know, there's the whole phenomenon of the trophy wife or the trophy husband or whatnot. And, you know, like Instagram and social media, I don't know how much you use those, but probably not too much, <laughs> except YouTube, um, <laughs> but probably nothing at all. But um, but if you, you know, people are constantly posting on social media, you know, about their, you know, their, their, their super hot, you know, girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, you know, and so it's like they almost love the person in part because of what they, how, how much they, how well they can accessorize, you know, with them in their own life. You know, they see the person as an accessory almost, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That in fact, the automobile industry for many, many years now has been using, um, let us say, a nicely dressed young lady in an evening ground standing beside their automobile on a turntable. And the delusion is, is that um, if you buy this car, you get this girl too. This is the right. whole concept of the chick magnet. That's right. another place of looking at materialism. Right. There is a great okay. documentary. You, you would. Oh, here's a documentary for you. Here's one. Uh, it's called the. <laughs> it's called the Century of the Self, and it's a four-part series by BBC, and it's about how Freudian theory uh, 
was the birth of modern advertising in the 20th One century. One moment, please. Yep. Did you learn about the century of the self from me? Or no, are you telling no, I, me about it? I'm telling you about it. I saw it about a year ago or so. Yeah, you've seen it? Okay. Yeah. Not only have I seen it, but I recommend it to students regularly. Wow. Wow. It's a great, it's a great series, yeah. Yes, it's, it's about um, uh, Edward Bernays, yep. who was a uh, um, the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And that what he did was with his uh, uh, uncle's work was he in, invented a brand new um, area of psychology that now, or let us say in the 1970s, was known as industrial psychology. Sure. And or was what, it public relations? I, well, I industrial that. psychology means that it's the psychology industrialists use. Sure. Not the psychology that's therapeutic. Right. And Edward Bernays is a study in learning how powerful moneyed people learn to control other people. But this has been going on since the time of the Buddha. Even before that, people have been manipulating other people. And that uh, Edward Bernays turned it into a science. Right. Do you know? Uh, they didn't make a big point of it, but Edward Bernays uh, was German, and he was employed by Hitler. That it was actually Edward Bernays that started the whole issue about propaganda. Sure, the propaganda, I, didn't know he was I think, by Hitler. But yes. yeah, wow. So was, by the way, IBM. Right, right. Which is kind of funny when you think about it, because there actually is kind of similar aesthetics in IBM advertising and Nazi propaganda. I, I didn't thought of that, but, but you're right. Well, in those days, it was the punch card equipment. that That's how they were able to do all of the transportation and logistics and everything of operating World War II in Germany was done through IBM punch cards. Sure. sure. And that they also had banking from the American bankers. That, in fact, one of the primary sources of um, uh, wealth, uh, or let us say, um, uh, loans from uh, the American banks came from a man called Prescott Bush. Have you ever heard of the name Prescott Bush? Yes, he was the father of H.W. Uh, ah! <laughs> <laughs> if the Republicans knew that, I wonder if they would have ever voted for Bush. You know, probably. I don't know. I think people just vote based on their identity. You know, it's like you've been oh, they voting a certain upon way. Fear. They based sure. upon their own fear and greed and delusion. Fear, voting is a second noble truth operation. <laughs> yeah. Because if, if people really know what's going on, they don't vote. Sure. I, I didn't vote. In 2020, I voted in 2016, but not in 2020. You know, I, I just didn't like either option. You know, I yeah. it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It's the fact that you know that your vote's not going to do anything. Right, right. But everybody yeah. else, they say, oh, you got to go vote. Oh, it's really important. You got to vote. You got to vote. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I was just listening to a podcast today and it was that he's interviewing this guy, Michael Malice. He was interviewing um, 
someone named uh, Justin Amish, who ran as the Libertarian presidential candidate. And, uh, and Amish, or Amash, I don't know how you say his last name, I think it's Amish, A-M-A-S-H. But anyway, Amish, in his previous gig before doing that, he was a member of Congress. And he was asked, you know, so, um, you know, so today, like, you know, Congress seems like it's like they ha- they hate each other, the Republicans and the Democrats, right? And he, and, and he asked him, is that really the case? You know, and Amish was a Republican when he was there. And he said, no, we don't hate each other at all. As a matter of fact, we often get along quite well. It's all just a play. <laughs> it's all performative. You know, mm-hmm. and in fact, when they give their little speeches during testimony and whatever, they're actually pre-written beforehand. And they're reading written scripts like an actual performance, you know, of some kind. And, um, and, and we know who said, writes those scripts, too. Yeah. Like it's the, it's the, the young people who come to Washington thinking that they can drain the swamp. Right. But, you know, even they, they get totally co-opted, you know, by. Exactly. They the become forces. the alligators. Right. Right. Like this, the. This generation yeah. of young bucks coming to Washington to solve the problems of the world are next year's alligators. Right, right. And it's just, you know, duka, 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 duka. never ending, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> and it's like you said, you know, I think in our previous conversation or one of our conversations, you know, it's, it's a dirty business. You know, it's just it's you, you go in. I mean, I haven't been in politics, but from I've read about it a lot. You know, I think the past four years, every American was an amateur political scientist, you know, uh, but uh, I don't know how close connected you are to what was going on in the U.S., but um, everyone was very on edge about everything, you know, for the last four years. And uh, only four years, huh? Re- well, really, I think that people time. got on on that kind of on edge four years ago because of what happened eight years before that, et cetera. I mean, it's just a yeah, never-ending story, literally. <laughs> yeah, it was just getting worse, you know. Um, and I well, think, things you know, get the... worse before they get better. Things are up and down, and we're critical when it's up, and we're critical when it's down. When we recognize that everything is okay by it is, let the things go up and down. Is right. that my job? Right. Things are going to go up and down. The Republicans are going to win. The Democrats are going to win. When the Democrats win, all kinds of terrible things are going to happen. We need a Republican in office. And then when he's in office, every kinds of terrible things can happen. So we need a Democrat. And back and forth and up and down. (laughs) Sure. So, you know, it's funny. That's called Samsara. (laughs) Sure. And, you know, in one of your podcasts with Guru Viking, uh, his name's Ian. What's his name? I I just think of him as the Guru Viking. (laughs) Because that's the name of his podcast. Steve. Steve. Steve, Steve yeah. James. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, with Steve, um, you uh, mentioned that in the face of death, you, you're you totally fine with that. You know, and that that was amazing. You know, that to me is really saying, like, that's really taking the it doesn't matter to the highest. It's okay. It's fine to the highest level because even in violent death. You know, you're okay with that. That was something I really took away from one of those conversations. Um, that takes planning. <laughs> but I thought, I but thought I'm, I'm joking in the sense of um, uh, preparation. That if um, uh, actually is is part of the uh, uh, um, or 
in a way, a, an important part of the Buddhist training from the Buddha is to anticipate one's death. What is it going to be like? What's your last mind moment? And uh, many ways that we can work with that. Another one is when you're going to sleep, what is your last mind moment of wakefulness? Do you actually know that you're going to sleep when you're going to sleep? Because if you can watch yourself go to sleep, then you can watch yourself die. And so uh, being very mindful as we're, as we're going into, uh, into the sleep state is very valuable. Also working with the breath because death is all about not breathing. Sure. That's why they use the word expire. What does the word expire mean? It means to exhale, to breathe out. So that's so the last breath is that out breath. And then we don't take a new in breath. So two questions on that. So one or one question, really. So, um, you know, there's two different reports I've heard from people that have experienced death. You know, one, no one has experienced death and survived it. Death is death. They've had what they call near-death experiences. Sure, sure, near-death. They've experienced near-death. Um, so I, I actually have a friend who uh, was on ice for a little bit. I don't know how long he was on ice, but he, he uh, flatlined. You know, his heart stopped, mm -hmm. and he was pretty much done for. Um, and he said it was just a complete nothing. It was a blank. There was just nothing. And... I, and I've also was it a read, complete blank that he that he knew nothing about, or is it a complete blank that he could watch and see was blank? It was just like time, like he went to sleep and then he woke up, sort of thing. Right, exactly. So yeah. while um, so there's not there now. Um, I've actually um, I had a really really good friend who was a professor of psychology. The the surprise is is that he was a, a specialist in industrial psychology. That this oh, wow. is one of the favorite things that he was into was um, what happens to the mind at the point of death or what happens to the mind in these near-death experiences. Normally it has to do with right. the fact that the brain is um, deprived of oxygen. Sure. Oh, and j sorry, just one last point really quickly, um, which was that the other thing I was going to say was that the other experiences that you hear people report is this whole phenomenon of the tunnel, you know, and the seeing the family. That's what the, I was about to talk about, right, okay? Right. That basically what these are is um, processes that happen in the brain due to um, physiological changes to where the brain will get flooded with chemicals that are being released that used to be bound up because the blood had oxygen levels. So when the blood stops flowing, a lot of stuff starts happening, including breaking down of stuff. And this stuff can be experienced in the sense of um, a closing in, a tunneling, bright lights, all of that kind of stuff. And then the rest of it is kind of fantasy, like I met my grandmother. But we really don't know what's happening inside the brain, but we do know that one of two things can happen. Either one, we can somehow get the oxygen going again to medical science or pumping the chest or whatever like that and bring somebody out of it. And then they can talk about what happened while they were in that state. Or they die because they didn't get any of that. 
And it's yeah. those people, the ones who don't make it through, that are that are the ones who can't tell us what the final parts are. But we can pretty well guess that it's very much like there's nothing there. There's not even nothing that we know about. There's so much nothing that we don't even know that there's no nothing. Sure. So, you know, what are your thoughts? So it's funny. So on my desk here, I have a, a picture of the uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama right here. Yes, I know. Uh, I, I know him. And, uh, oh, oh, you've met? Yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah, you mentioned in the podcast and you you were... You you sounded like you had a great experience. Um. Um, mostly what I've gotten out of him, other than I mean, because it wasn't, it was just the Dalai Lama when I when I saw him, uh, I was within feet of him. Uh, but the the most more important thing about it is his relationship with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. That the Dalai Lama actually had two trips to Watsuan Mok, but the second one was canceled because the Chinese government uh, at that time was really angry at the Dalai Lama because they thought that he was political. So they, they uh, requested yeah. th- right. So they requested Thailand not give the Dalai Lama a visa, and all he was intending to do was to come meet his friend Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, but he did right. come one time, and that uh, so. Uh, uh, the Dalai Lama is highly thought of at Watsuanmo, yes. and that yes. he exhibits many of, or if not exhibits many of, but exhibits all that we need to know of what a noble-minded person is. That the Dalai Lama is obviously uh, noble, if you know sure. what to look for, and so- a lot of. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah. So the reason I so I really want to hear the the you to please continue. But one quick comment was the reason I brought up the Dalai Lama is is it, the Tibetans have kind of a different view on death, right? That you enter the bardo and then you return, right? So I was curious to hear your thoughts on this, which is why I brought up the Dalai Lama. But I am curious to hear the rest of the story. Well, of, yeah. The bardo, though. Uh, they have a book that is very similar to the Egyptian book of the dead. The sure. whole idea of the Bardo, there's a, there's a book that was written, um, manuscripts or whatever. But the thing that's important is, is that that's not Buddhist, that that's Tibetan. Mm-hmm. That just like uh, Thailand has an ancient religion that predates all of the Buddhism that they uh, is really interesting about history. When kids begin to understand history, they say, well, how do we know any of that stuff? And the answer is old records, archaeology, and all of that kind of stuff, as well as modern behavior that is passed down from mother to child over the centuries. Okay, so there's an old religion in Thailand, just like there was an old religion in Tibet. And the old religion of Thailand is very animistic, just like the old tradition of Tibet or the uh, old traditions of India. But in fact, we're kind of connected geographically. And you can see that over many, many millennia, that all of these old beliefs were shared. 
but that in each local area there's going to be individual items so in the um uh thai version of uh animism large trees on hilltops have very important significance because of the tree spirits they also have what is called spirit houses here in Tainan, which comes from the fact that if you take land, that land belongs to the spirits. If you build a house on that land, the spirits will come and live in your house unless you build a house for them. Sure, I've seen many of those there, even in Bangkok, you know, in the bustling. All over Bangkok, exactly. Yeah. Let's, let's keep those evil spirits out of the high rise by building a really nice shrine in front of the, uh, uh, the high rise building for them. Right. Possibly the biggest one is in front of Dusit uh, uh, Tani Hotel that's hmm. right at the corner of uh, uh, Ramapur and Selim Road. Um, is it Selim? Yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, in any case, we have all of these various religions in all of these various locations. And when Buddhism comes in, it never comes in to replace an old religion. Because it's not a religion. It can saddle up beside any gorilla. It doesn't need, I mean, right. if you're going to make friends with a gorilla, you can make friends with a gorilla of a religion. Right. And so that's what's happened. When Buddhism comes in, some people understand the teachings of the Buddha, and most of the people are going to be keeping with their animism, and then slowly, slowly, they're, they're combined. So Thai Buddhism is going to be different from Sri Lankan religion because of the original religion that Buddhism came to. And, and often Buddhism winds up looking more like the original religion than it does like Buddhism at all. So, so you think the bardo is just kind of a vestige, it's just kind of a vestigial organ from the original religion, the original Bon Tibetan, and not really part of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So you can see where then how the bardo uh, was used to come into the concept of, uh, uh, of let us say, patriarchs are reborn. This is the concept where the, they get the, um, the idea of the bodhisattva. Sure. Okay. And um, the gate, gate, paragate, parisam gate uh, is basically gone, gone beyond. So the arahat or the completely um, enlightened one doesn't come back. Right. From from uh, the beyond or whatever like and that. That's the, that's the criticism of Theravadan, is that it's selfish, you know, because the, the bodhisattva ideal is much more community-oriented. Well, actually what they're then doing is, is that they're saying, never mind that we're both religion, my ancient religion is better than your ancient religion. So they're not actually being Buddhist at all when they say that my Buddhism is better than your Buddhism. Because sure, in Buddha, sure. the real Buddhism is, is that we don't need to be doing those kinds of comparisons. <laughs> all right. Totally. But we can also see the similarities. If you want, let's go down that path for just a little bit. Sure, and that sure. is the, the concept of the Bodhisattva. 
the term bodhisattva is a term that what the Buddha used before he became enlightened. That in fact, a bodhisattva is an unenlightened one, the bodhi. Sattva means one who wants the enlightenment or the one who is going towards the enlightenment. This is what the bodhisattva is and that it's not an ideal. Hmm. Now, there is the issue of the noble. And so let's say then that the bodhisattva in the Tibetan tradition is going to be a noble who is almost there, but he doesn't go all the way in. Sure. We can see remnants of that in uh, uh, Thai Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism in the sense that it's kind of well known that an absolute arahat, one who is completely free, doesn't really make a good teacher. Mm. Because he really doesn't even care about the students. You know, oh yeah, well that's your problem. You know, you can go off and solve your own problem if you want to. I'll talk to you a little while, but if you don't get it, that's your problem, not mine. Okay, but it is a uh, the noble. In fact, um, it's kind of un, uh, understood that it is the sotapan that makes the best teacher. Why is the that? Because is... what is the sotapan? Oh, okay. I'll at least give you a chance, uh, give a chance to give a decent definition because most of the people have a completely confused understanding of the soda pond. And the soda pond basically means the stream enterer. Ah, got now, it. Okay, understood. Okay. All Seven right. Now, to go. Yeah. Pardon? Seven incarnations to go, stream enterer, you know. Ah. <clears throat> but we can also see that as seven mind moments of dukkha. In other words, how fast does it take the soda pond to wake up to see what's going on? <clears throat> the soda pond, that point is the soda pond is not going to spend much time in hell because he's going to wake up his intention. In other words, he's enthusiastic enough about the Dhamma. That is, in fact, one of the ways that is easiest for the beginner to understand who is the soda pond is the one who above all other mind moment choices is choosing the Dhamma mm. as opposed to the world. Mm. In other words, he keeps jumping in the stream. He keeps going back to the Dhamma and that in the motivation behind that would be enthusiasm. The enthusiasm for the Dhamma is exactly the same thing, equal and opposite reactions with Newton and all of that is he sees the dukkha. And the reason he sees the dukkha is because he keeps looking for it and he keeps finding it and keeps avoiding it. And so the question is, how long is he going to keep uh, uh, in the state of not looking and not seeing and therefore stuck in the way that he would be if he had not made that enthusiastic commitment to see what's going on? So that's so uh, basically we can say it like this. 
in some ways of looking uh, is absolutely required that someone be a full sotapan before they teach. This is why the Dable Achan uh, is reserved for monks who have been monks for 10 years because it generally takes about 10 years to figure out the Dhamma so that you become sotapan by then because you've got full dedication. But there's another way of looking at it, and, and that is, is that you don't have to be complete fruit of sotapan that we can actually be only um, the path of sotapan because even at the path level of sotapan, the sotapan knows dukkha. He yeah. knows what is the path and what is not the path. And Bhikkhu Buddha also would say that he knows Paticca Samuppada. So once someone comes to the point of knowing how the mind works, now they're fit for teaching. Even though they hadn't gotten their mind straightened out yet, nor are they enthusiastic to, to work on it all the time. Sure. So, quick comment. Back to the Dalai Lama now. Uh, sure. Um, but quick comment on the soda pond, because I, I kind of feel that that's what I am. Um, you know, I, I, I learned about the Dharma, you know, when I was 17 for the first time. And I didn't really, I, feel, I don't think I really began to grok it until my first 21-day uh, silent retreat. You know, really the 10-day retreat. I did a 10-day retreat at Swan Moak, 21 days at uh, Chom Tong. And um, after that, you know, it might have been that Swan Moak, actually. You know, I just felt like the Dharma was the way. And um, I had many detours into other paths and... <laughs> I've tried many other things, but always mm -hmm. in the back of my mind has been that the Dharma is the right way, you know, and it's just always been there. I have that confidence, and that's why I'm talking to you today, nine years after I first discovered the Dharma, you know, and it's like it's just never okay. left my consciousness. It's just always been of interest to me. Yeah, please continue. I, yeah. All right. I will say it like this then. Um, that would be pre-sotapan. That's not yet the path of sotapan. And the operative word that shows that is the word can. In the sense that the, uh, the pre-sotapan can see that the Dhamma, can see that the Dhamma works, can see that the Dhamma can work for him. The, uh, the very, very first step of the Sotapan, and this is actually in the Sutta. I'll tell you exactly what Sutta this is in. It's number 48 in the, uh, the Consambian Sutta. I've got a few favorite suttas, and this is one of them because it's so clear that it's impossible to miss, okay? And that basically in this Sutta, it talks about seven knowledges. And that the very first knowledge... It said that this first knowledge, when someone gets this first knowledge, then they are now on the path. This is the first step of the noble path. Anyone who has made this step or gained this knowledge is now Sotapan. At least the, uh, the, uh, the path of Sotapan. They're on the path. And so what is this first knowledge? The knowledge that no matter how obstructed the mind is, the student can clean out the mind, come back to this present moment, 
and enjoy this present moment no matter how much the hindrances are there. There are many examples of that. One of my favorites is, is that the monk was being chased by a tiger. And that the tiger chased, and he was going up the hill until he got to a precipice. And now the tiger is behind him and the precipice is in front of him. What is he going to do? Well, he jumps or he climbs down. And now he's just below the precipice, out of range from the lion that's right above him, 10 feet above him. And he's hanging on for dear life to some root that's come sure. out of the side of the thing. And sure. there is a flower. You've heard yep, the and there's story, like a little bit huh? of honey dripping down. Yeah. Okay. But that flower is in this present moment. So it doesn't matter what danger is in, uh, right above him. He can enjoy this moment. That's the first step of Sotapan that is super mundane, a factor of the path. It is noble and it is not shared by ordinary people. No, Why? Because not. ordinary ordinary <laughs> people are going to be worried about that tiger or the lion. Right. I, I, I explain this to people. Like whenever I try to explain Buddhism to people, it, it almost always falls flat. You know, it, it's like I, I can explain some of the teachings, you know, and that might be well received or whatnot. But if I ever really explain, like, listen, you can just sit and be happy. People just don't buy that. You know, they, they just don't buy it. And, and like when I say, you know, like it's funny, actually. So after I, I came home to Seattle, where I'm from, after my 21 day retreat and and I had kind of a dark night of the soul period. Uh, where I just saw everything as just very materialistic. And, you know, the world was not what I thought it was, you know. Um, and, um, and I just saw everyone in my life as having all these flaws and, and dukkha that was self-inflicted. You know, Dad, you care way too much about money. You know, Mom, you don't know how to sit, sit still for a minute. You know, you'd be happier if you did, you know my friend this, my friend that, you know, et cetera. And I was criticizing everything, you know, and... Um, Still critical, exactly. That's exactly yeah. what happens is, is that we start seeing the world as it is and we become a super critical of it. Yeah, super critical. Once the delusion was... was the, the, the veil of delusion. Yeah, I was just totally disgusted with everyone and everything. And... Um, the reason that I use that word is because I want to point out the difference between the feeling and the uh, uh, the situation of being disgusted versus being in a state of despair. Hmm. Because the dark night of the soul is much more of a state of despair. Hmm. And yet uh, there's no reason for Buddhists to go through that. But there is a reason for people uh, in uh, practicing the Buddha to become disgusted. Because how else are we going to come out of our dukkha until we become disgusted with it? Sure, sure. But despair is different because uh, despair is disgust plus no way out. Sure. And this is what the dark night of the soul is. A good example is uh, the lady called Mother Teresa who is being canonized and beautified and all of that. But meanwhile, her 
um, she already had a really, really 100% strong enemy, Christopher Hitchens. And he made a point to prove that this lady is not worthy of beautification, nor is she worthy of uh, anything, that she was actually, in a way, kind of a charlatan that she advertised and wanted money to help the poor people in Calcutta. And when she got the money, she built her monasteries and, and formed an order in her own name. And the people of this Calcutta, who she originally raised funds for, the hell with them. But in fact, she thought the idea was is that they should suffer. If they suffer enough, then they will understand the glory of God. But that was the position that she wanted them to suffer because she was suffering. Now, why was she suffering? She was suffering because Jesus wouldn't talk to her. She had read the Bible and she read about all of these uh, magical experiences that we're having. And she expected that to happen to her. And she'd say, God, God, come. And he don't come. And after a few years of that, she recognized, hey, she's on her own. But her training was such that she needs God and God's not coming. And so she falls into a state of despair. This sure. happens within Christianity. And the problem with um, monks and, and Christians who go through this is they can't find a priest who has successfully come through it. Sure. Why? Because their position in Christianity is, is that you're going to get your beauty and your freedom from God. And if God doesn't come, you're screwed. And God don't come. Therefore, dark night of the soul and people feel screwed. They didn't sure. get what they were promised. Now, a lot of people will say, well, I need to do more. Let me get more, and then I'll get my promise. I just haven't done enough. I haven't prayed enough. Eventually, God will answer me when I get 10,000 hours of prayer or something like that. But the Buddhists do the same thing. Oh, I've got to have 100,000 hours of meditation, and then the common machine is going to come in and shake some shakti pot rose water on me, and then I'll be happy. Sure. And it's all magical thinking. So the dark night of the soul exists because of magical thinking. And it's, and it's called despair. And despair can get really, really dark. Sure. Now, some people will say, oh, well, Buddhism doesn't mean that. What in Buddhism means the dark night of the soul is, is when you figure out there's no soul. <laughs> that that's the darkest night is, hey, there is no me. What about that? <laughs> But that's not really the issue, because the issue that you're talking about is the issue of being disgusted with the world. But then we begin to go to the second step to recognize that it's not the world itself that is disgusting, that the world just is the world. What's disgusting is my clinging to it. Right. That's the disgusting part. It's not right. the world itself. It's the fact that I want the world to be different than it is. Now, that's really disgusting because I'm not big enough and good enough and I'm not a sharp enough politician, nor am I wealthy enough and have enough money that I can fix society. And yet everyone, every child every, in school and every politician is going to say, you're responsible for fixing society. And we all go around feeling like failures. 
But the reality is society is just society. There's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't need to be fixed. I used to tell the story about the tar baby because the tar baby is exactly this, but we can't talk about the tar baby anymore. It's racist. I haven't I haven't heard this story. You don't know the story of the tar baby? No. Okay. You have at least heard of, of Uncle Remus. Um, sounds vaguely familiar, but not really. Yeah. Okay, Uncle Remus was um, uh, in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. There was a set of books written. I don't know who wrote them. But um, Disney eventually made a movie of it in 1948, and the name of the movie was The Song of the South. And that one of the, ta- one of the songs that come out of that movie, The Song of the South, is Zippity-Doo-Dah, Zippity-Yay. My, oh, my, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine went heading my way. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-yay. Okay, very lighthearted song and all of that. Basically, the setting is an old slave, Uncle Remus, is telling stories to two white kids. And that one of the stories that he tells them, in fact, all of the stories have three main characters. A rabbit, a bear, and a fox. Brer fox, brer rabbit, and brer uh, bear. Now, the fox would use the bear um, as, as a companion in uh, crime against the rabbit. And there was a story in there where the bear and the fox found some tar that was just laying there in the hot sun and they had the idea they're going to take that tar and form it into a baby and they set that baby to the side of the road perhaps propped up against a a rock or the tree or something and now Br'er Rabbit comes down the trail hippity hoppity and he sees this um, uh, tar baby and so he says hi how's y'all and tar baby don't say nothing and so the rabbit says, hey, I told you hi, y'all. What do you mean not talking to me? So the rabbit gets all huffy up, and he comes up to the tar baby and says, why are y'all not talking? And the tar baby just sits there and doesn't say anything. And the rabbit gets so angry that he hits the tar baby. But when he hits the tar baby, he gets his paw stuck in the tar. And so he hits him again with the other fist. And now he's got that in the tar. And so he kicks him, and then he kicks him again, and now the tar, uh, the, uh, uh, the tar is getting all over the, uh, the rabbit. And he gets bound up with the tar that he got himself into. And along come uh, Bear Fox and Bear, uh, uh, bear uh, and, and catch the rabbit. And so the rabbit says, oh, I want to get away, Bo, please give me, uh, let me go. And they're saying, shall we cook him? Shall we uh, roast him? What are we going to do? And the rabbit gets an idea and he says, you can do anything you want to me. I don't really care anymore. Just please don't throw me in that briar patch. Now, that's one that many people remember. Don't throw me in that briar patch. 
And so they says, hmm, maybe that's what, if, we, if he doesn't want to go into Briar Patch, that's what we'll do. So we'll throw him in the Briar Patch. And as soon as they threw the rabbit into the Briar Patch, here he comes with that zippity-doo-dah song. Why? Because he's home. The rabbit lives in the Briar Patch. And the fox and the bear, they can't go into the Briar Patch because they'll get briars all over them. So they actually gave him away. So that's the story. But the important point is the story about that tar baby. What is the story about the tar baby is, is that that's how we do our whole lives. We'll just be bopping down the road and all of a sudden there'll be something that catches our attention and we just won't let it go. Mm. Until we're covered in tar. I, I know. Yep, I, I know the, the phenomenon. Yep. <laughs> and so that's what the story of the tar baby is that we just get stuff stuck all over us. Going back to the dark night of the soul now, that's a way of thinking that that's the dark night of the soul is when we're absolutely covered with the tar that we got ourselves into because we didn't like something. And we wound up making a great big mess out of it. And we, and we thought that we were here to drain the swamp. And we wound up <laughs> being eaten by the alligators. Sure. Or one of them become one of them so um the dark night of the soul is really not necessary when we can see the distinction between disgust and despair mm. that in fact the rabbit first was in disgust he was disgusted with that tar baby because it wouldn't talk to him but by trying to get the tar baby to respond to him he winds up getting caught. Now he's completely lost. He's stuck in it. He's in despair. Sure. You don't have to go into despair. You don't have to go to into, into a dark night of the soul because we've got a way out. What is that way out? We do not need help from the outside. You do not need a Jesus or a God or anything else to save you. That as long as you want someone else to save you, you're going to remain unsaved, whatever that means. But when you recognize that you can get yourself out of it yourself, sure. that's when it's liberating. Totally. So, anyway, it's quite late. I'm getting kind of sleepy. Um, All right. But, yeah, but well, we've it's been hammering it for two hours now, so I can we, imagine. We have. Yeah, and it's I'm not at all I'm very engaged. Just it's very late, and I've had a long day. But th this has been really wonderful as always, and um, we'll talk soon. Um, you also talk on the weekends, right? Every day is a holiday. Great, great. So maybe I'll call you tomorrow. We'll see. You know, but we'll uh, see you. Okay. Well, thank you so much, um, Cup Coon Cup, and uh, okay. And uh, all the best, and we'll talk soon. We, we, we have multiple threads to pick up. You know, we have yes. the prison book, which we have not discussed. That was a great book. I read it in like a, a, in a little bit. You know, it didn't take too long to read. Then we have Death, uh, the Bardo, uh, Dalai Lama, um, the Anapanasati practice. You know, we have plenty to continue with. So, and it'll, yeah. So. Absolutely. We don't have really yeah. anything worth discussing. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's but all we can, fine. It's but all we, okay, right? But we can have a whole lot of fun talking about the Dhamma. All right.
in all of its aspects. Sounds great. Thank you so much. And talk soon. Okay, Robert. See you later. See you later.